0: Good evening. We're going to be in Ephesians a little bit, and then we're going to be moving around. Uh, I typically like to just hang out in one text, but every now and then there's a text uh, that requires us to dig a little deeper. There's more here. Uh, it's too much here to just pass over uh, and do this all in one sermon, so we've been slowly working our way through and talking about uh, the armor of God, learning about the armor of God together. Um as we've been studying this, um, we've been noticing how each piece of the armor prevents uh, a serious wound on us spiritually, that Satan is constantly trying to attack us, desiring to defeat us so that he can accuse us and condemn us, but that God has given us each piece of armor for us to take up and put on, and by, by doing that, to prevent the harm that Satan wants to cause in our lives. We talked about uh, all the different pieces of armor so far, uh, and we're left to the last two. But I'd like for us to read through again what was said in Ephesians 6, because it's been a few weeks since we've done it, uh, just to get the whole picture. Let's start in verse 11. It says, Put on the whole armor of God, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We've talked about most of these, as I said. We've talked about the belt of truth and how we fasten that to uh, hold our clothes in so that we can move and be agile, and the need for us to know the truth, to be grounded in the truth is going to help us and prevent us from getting tripped up on different things. Uh, We've talked about the uh, breastplate of righteousness, not Christ making us righteous, but that we would put on holy living. We would be the type of people who are holy and righteous before God and striving for that, and that's going to protect our vitals. Then we talked about, after that, the shoes of readiness. that We would put, put on readiness and be ready to fight against trials, to fight against temptations, and to do whatever work God has given us to do because the gospel has made us ready and excited about facing whatever we can face. And last time we talked about the shield of faith, which is intended to prevent all of the flaming darts of the evil one. And We saw how faith is essential, and faith is something that men were using throughout the Old Testament and men were using throughout the New Testament to defeat Satan. They had to believe that God is good and that he is a rewarder of those who love him and serve him and put their faith in him. Now we're down to the last two. Uh, Here we read about the helmet of salvation and the spirit of truth. So today we're going to be looking at and thinking about the helmet of salvation for just a little bit. Uh, What is this all about? What's a helmet? Everybody knows, right? Everybody knows what a helmet is. Uh, It is what protects our head from a mortal blow. If you're in combat, you want to have your helmet on. Uh, You don't want a big broadsword coming in and hitting you upside the head without a helmet on. Uh, that would kill you instantly, and that's definitely not what anyone would want. So helmet being essential, it doesn't we don't have to go into detail about any of that, but what he says is salvation is your helmet. So we need to think about that a little bit. How is salvation a helmet for our head? Uh, and And what does that helmet of salvation do to prevent? the the damage that satan can do on us. How, how is a helmet of salvation going to help us in our spiritual warfare? And then we're going to think about how we can put this on. How can we put on the helmet of salvation? Now it kind of sounds like an odd thing, right? How do you put on the helmet of salvation when you're already a Christian? Right? I mean, Hasn't, haven't all these Ephesians already been saved whenever Paul went to Ephesus and taught the gospel to them? So how is it that they're supposed to put on the helmet of salvation, right? Well, you're putting on truth, you're putting on uh, righteousness, you're putting on readiness, you're putting on faith, you're putting on salvation. So obviously there's a sense in which you can put more of this on. You can put this on and you need to put this on. So what, what is that talking about? we oftentimes will talk about salvation as a past tense. You ever heard anybody ask you the question, when were you saved? Or, uh, you know, what happened that led to you being saved? I mean, that's the way we talk, right? I was saved back in 2005. You know, that's kind of the way we talk about it. Uh, But what we see here is that there's a sense in which salvation is not this one-time event that took place. And then that's it. It's all over. You're saved now, and that's the end of it. But it's talked about as though it's something that we continually are putting on. We're putting on salvation. Not that we're losing salvation all the time. We've got to hurry up and scramble and put it back on. But that there's a sense in which not only have we been saved by submitting to uh, the truth and, and committing our lives to Christ, but that we're also being saved throughout our life. And there's also a sense in which we will be saved in the future. So there's a hope of salvation in the future. So there's a past saved, there's a present saved, and there's a future saved that we need to be thinking about. And whenever we study this together, I think more so the present salvation that is being offered to us daily and the future salvation is what we need to put on. The idea that we are being saved and the idea that we have a future hope of salvation to come. So let's think about these two senses just a little bit. First of all, there's a sense in which we are being saved, okay? Now, how does that work? Well, turn over to James chapter 4. Turn over to James chapter 4. Let's look at a section of James tonight. Um, James chapter 4, starting in verse 1, it says, "'What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this?' Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he is made to dwell in us? First of all, let's think about for a second that James is writing this to Christians who are struggling. And what he tells them is, you're fussing and fighting with each other. Why are you doing that? Is it not because you have passions for the things of this world? And is that not why you're not getting what you want in life? Because you're asking God with the wrong heart, with the wrong motive. You desire things that are of this world. You're a friend of the world. Now, as James writes these things and says these things, Maybe we're tempted to say, yeah, why are y'all doing that? You know, you're adulterous people. I can't believe you would love this world and the things of this world. I can't believe you'd be so focused on those things. I can't believe you'd have idols. Do we? Have you ever struggled with this? Have you ever, after receiving God's salvation, turned back into the, the thought that maybe something in this world can satisfy me and I need something in this world? And have you ever fussed and fought and quarreled and coveted and desired things that are not God and become a friend of the world? Have you ever done that? Are you doing that right now? Well, what now? Now you need salvation. Look at verse 6. But he gives more grace. I like that. But he gives more grace. He calls them adulterous people. He says, do you not know that he yearns jealously for the spirit he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. You connect verse 6 to what he's just said in verses 1 through 5. And you understand salvation is not something that's a one-time deal. But it's something that is available even after You have accepted his grace initially. There is grace still being offered that is available, and he gives more. Aren't you grateful that he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Listen to this. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I think this text is an excellent picture of the the salvation that is continually being offered to those who are in Christ. And the picture of receiving more grace whenever this world has pulled us, whenever Satan has come to attack us, that that there's grace that's offered and available for all those who will see their sin, humble themselves, submit to God, and receive grace. Grace. Grace is available, and God is wanting to give it to those who are humble, not to those who are proud, who think there's nothing wrong with what I'm doing, and I can do whatever I want to do, but those who submit themselves and say, what have I done? And whenever we do that, and we resist the devil, the text tells us he will flee from us. See, there's this battle that's being talked about here, and it's not... It, it, it's not easily exposed in the text. He's not going through and saying there's this mental struggle that Christians are going to face in their lives where they're going to be drawn to desire the things that are in this world, and they're going to be drawn to think about those things and and covet those things and desire those things. And, And whenever that happens, you have to understand you need grace. And you have to submit and humble yourselves before God to receive it. That's what he's saying here. And I think it's an excellent picture of why we need to have salvation as a helmet for us. A remembrance that God gives more grace when we absolutely need it. None of us are perfect. Hopefully we're striving for perfection. But I'll tell you, there's plenty of times when I've, I've wandered off to look at something that I thought was really going to provide satisfaction, and it's empty. And you've probably done the same thing. And, and we just need to recognize that there's weaknesses in us, and we need to have our minds fixed on the grace that's being offered to us continually. And that's, that's exactly what Paul is trying to tell us. You put on the helmet of salvation. And it protects you. It it provides for you the realization that God is willing to save even those who have turned against Him if they'll turn back to Him. Salvation is in the present tense, but it's also in the future tense. And we could talk about salvation in the present tense in other ways. There's a sense in which no temptation is overtaking you. That is not common to man. We kind of talked about that before, that God is providing for us a way of escape. God is trying to save us in the present tense. There's actually lots of ways that we can think about God trying to save us and working on saving us in the future or in the present tense. But there's also a sense in which we will be saved. And I think that fits well with this idea of a helmet of salvation, that we must continually be putting on and remembering the salvation and believing in the salvation that is being offered to us after this life is over. There's a future salvation that is made available for those who endure to the very end. That's why there's a continual plea from Paul and other writers. Endure all the suffering, all the trials, all the temptations. Have endurance. Stay faithful to the very end. Because in the very end, He will save us from the trials, from the temptations, from the sufferings, from all the things that are broken in this world. I love Ecclesiastes, uh, where Solomon points out, everything is broken. (laughs) What is crooked cannot be made straight. Uh, There's no fixing the problem of this earth. Everything under the sun is broken and messed up, and we need somebody to fix it because we can't fix it. He said, I've tried everything. I'm the wealthiest man, most powerful man on earth. I can't fix it. And then later in the book, he comes to this conclusion, God made it this way so that we would live for a future where it is fixed. And that's exactly the picture that we get throughout the New Testament, that God made this world broken so that we would long for what is eternal? We look at someone who is, is suffering. We look at a child who's suffering. Uh, Sandy Kindleball has been posting updates on a little girl named Daddy. Uh, and such a sweet little girl. So much suffering. It's just, it's horrible what her and her parents are having to go through. And we just wonder why. You know, why is that allowed to happen? You know? what? Well, the reason, I think, is because we're being reminded everything here breaks. Nothing here lasts. And we're, we're, we're longing now for the future when this kind of stuff doesn't happen. I love how Paul put it in Romans chapter 8. You want to turn to Romans chapter 8 with me? In verse 18, beginning, you see a picture of uh, longing for things to be made right for the problems that solomon points out throughout Ecclesiastes to be fixed the the brokenness of creation after we have sinned and 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 failed to be image bearers God cursed us and and made life the way that it is and yet he promises to fix it one day and paul's referring to that in Romans 8 Verse 18, beginning, he said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I love that. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For, he, for Who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This text is basically pointing out our struggle, that we live in a broken, corrupted world that's full of death and pain and suffering, and yet, God has decided to give us hope, hope of future glory, hope of being adopted as his sons and the redemption of our bodies uh, to to be made into those new glorious bodies that are incorruptible, imperishable, uh, and and able to last for all eternity. And he says this is our hope. Now, Ephesians has told us that we are adopted, that these these blessings are real right now. But what Paul is pointing to, I think, in this text is There's a sense in which we're still waiting and we're groaning in these bodies for the day to come when all those things are realized in the fullest sense. And that's something that we need to realize is a helmet that we put on our heads that provides the protection that we need against the pull to come back into this world, to live for this world and all the things that are on it knowing that there is a time that's coming when all these things will be done away with when we get to live as God's children in his presence no more sin no more tears no more pain no more suffering no more children dying and no more loved ones dying at all but we live together interesting, whenever we look at Philippians, we see Paul talking about that hope of future salvation. He talks about it and he says, I'm giving up everything so that I can attain it. I count everything here as rubbish because this is the most important thing to me that I would be resurrected with Christ, that I would know the resurrection of Christ and experience it and get to live with him for all eternity and to put on that new body that's created in his image. This is what God is telling us we have waiting for us. And that salvation is something that protects our head. It's something that protects our minds, our thoughts. It prevents us from falling to the deception of Satan. This is why we need this helmet. Because Satan's attacks are not physical. Satan's attacks are commonly mental. They're attacks against our thoughts and our way of thinking about events and circumstances and things that that are taking place and, and, and happening in our lives. Satan is constantly there trying to tell us what is opposite of the truth. He wants us to believe that God is not working in our lives. He wants us to believe God doesn't care enough to really do anything or or work in any way. He's just kind of a bystander sitting back and watching how things turn out and and not helping us at all. He's not transforming anyone. He's not saving anyone. He's just letting it happen however it's going to happen. And we just, we think, okay, well, I'll just, I'll, I'll continue to do what God wants me to do and I'll work on helping my wife be a fulfilling, you know, the fulfillment of what God wants her to be, helping my husband be who God wants him to be, helping my children be who God wants them to be. And, and we do all this work and we see no change and we think, God's not even doing anything. That's what Satan wants us to think. We talk to our neighbor about the gospel. Doesn't go anywhere. God's not doing anything. God's not working. You see how he's just—he's deceiving us. He's constantly making us think it'll never work. God's not going to do it, and I can't do it. So therefore, it just won't work. Well, Elijah had those same kind of thoughts, and back in 1 Kings nineteen, you remember uh, he he is running away from Jezebel after this huge demonstration where God brought fire down from the sky and, and took up the sacrifices and Jezebel ruined it. Everybody was saying, the Lord, he is God. And Jezebel came in and basically turned their hearts right back to Baal. And he runs away and he says to God, just kill me. Nothing's changed. Nobody's any different. Everybody's the way that they'll always be. I alone am left. And God says... There's 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Satan's working on him. He's making him think. There's nobody who, who, who loves God. There's nobody who really wants to do what's right. You're not having any effect. You're not having any impact on anybody, anywhere. God is not saving anyone. That's what Satan tries to do. But if we know what the salvation is and what the truth is about God's salvation, and we know that God is faithful and that he is working and doing things that are helping those who are lost come to know him, that are bringing those who are are saved closer to him, and we don't lose sight of that when Satan tries to affect us in this way. He also tries to deceive us into thinking, you've done too much. You've gone too far. God doesn't love you anymore. You can't be saved. You ever had those kind of doubts, those kind of thoughts creep into your mind? Maybe, it's, maybe, maybe that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Maybe he has actually abandoned me at this point. You know that Satan trying to deceive you? He's trying to trick you into taking off your helmet, to stop thinking about God's grace, to stop looking for God's grace, and accepting God's grace. But what James told us back in James chapter 4, if you read verse 8, again, it says, if we draw near to him, he draws near to us. He wants to draw near to us. He wants to help us. That's who he is. That's what he is like. That's what he wants. And so don't ever believe you've gone too far. God doesn't want you. He is constantly wanting to draw near to us. The problem is not that he can't draw near to us. The problem is we refuse to draw near to him. And, you know, the sad part is whenever we think this way, we're acting like the blood of Christ is not enough to forgive all sin not powerful enough for my sins that's just proud (laughs) and not humble and not submissive if God says he wants to forgive even though I wouldn't forgive me he will but Satan wants us to believe he won't and that's why we need the helmet of salvation on our head all the time so how do we put this on Are you humble enough to wear this helmet? Are you humble enough to say, God, I would never forgive me for this, but I know you are way more forgiving than I am. And I know that you give more grace. And I know that if I will humble myself and submit my will to your will, you will save me again. And forgive me and continue to work on me to make me who I ought to be. Are we humble enough to say that we truly believe and and commit ourselves to the, the idea that God is willing to save us? And are we willing to submit our will to His will and accept that salvation? We need to be very diligent in our thoughts. We need to be very careful about the way we think. And I love how Paul put it. It's so fitting with all of this talk about the armor of God. In 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5, he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. I think that's so fitting with this picture of putting on a helmet of salvation that we're waging a war and it's not a war of the flesh. You know, there's no physical person for me to go and beat up because I want to sometimes but it's a mental war, it's a spiritual war. And he says, our our weapons of warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. Are there any strongholds that Satan has over you? Is he showing that he has dominance and he has power, that he defeats you? Well, the weapons of our warfare give us the divine power to destroy strongholds. How? It says we destroy arguments. What arguments are you making in your mind? What lies are you telling yourself? You know What lies is Satan telling you? What are you beating those with the word? destroying arguments and every lofty opinion raised. Is, is there something inside of you that constantly says, I'm, I am strong and, or I'm good enough or, or I'm, I'm not good enough. My sin is too great. You know, it's just kind of a lofty opinion of my sin. What, what lofty opinion do you have against the knowledge of God? The weapons of our warfare are able to destroy it because we take every thought captive to obey Christ. We need to be very diligent about our minds and what we think and how we think. And that's, I think, what, what this is all about. To, to put on the helmet of salvation is to, to take control and think about your thoughts. Consider the way you're thinking about God and the way you're thinking about your relationship with God. And one thing that I've done that I think has been hugely transform, transformative in my life is adjusting the way I pray to remember God's salvation. You know, I just, I, I've completely changed my prayer life in the last seven years or so, eight years or so. Since I got more into the Word, it transforms my prayer life to focus in more on God's salvation and the thought of God's salvation. You know, uh, Most holy and gracious Heavenly Father. That's how I start out my, my prayer. Every prayer, most holy and gracious Heavenly Father. How am I thinking about God from the very opening words of my prayer You are holy, and you are so gracious to me. And I just try to think about how gracious God is in every prayer that I speak. I remind myself, I'm not talking to a harsh, wrathful, judgmental, desiring to destroy God. I'm talking to a God who loves me and who wants me to be saved, who wants me to draw near to him, who is forgiving and gracious toward me. And so my prayers are constantly thinking about that so that I'm reminded of that every single day. And whenever I study, you've noticed this in our Bible studies, how do we think about God when we study? You know, I mean, so many times whenever I see these horrible, sinful people throughout the Old Testament, I'm tempted to say, man, these people are messed up, you know. Uh, But, you know, along with that is the understanding that God is gracious toward them. Look at how patient God is, you know, just kind of, Take a second and say, "Okay, yeah, what David did? Wow, you know that's really messed up." But take a second to appreciate that God was so patient toward him and gracious to offer Nathan to him to tell him what he was doing wrong. And in every story, there's some picture of God being gracious and patient, and then there's a sense in which it where it runs out, but not not until hundreds of years have passed. So, whenever we read God's word, I think it's just overflowing with a picture of God's grace. And it's constantly reminding us that we have a salvation that is is constantly available if we'll just humble ourselves and submit to whatever the will of God is. He wants to forgive. He wants to save because that's who he is. And that thought should captivate us and make us want to put on this helmet of salvation all the time so that we defeat all of Satan's deceptions. He can't cast the mortal blow If we're relying on God's grace all the time and it's transforming us inside out. So what a blessing it is that we have this available. All of these uh, pieces of armor have been made available by God. God, through writing his word and revealing this to us, has made all of this available to us. But we have to take it up and put it on. It starts with the initial reception of salvation. Salvation. And if you haven't done that, there is an opportunity for you to do that at any time. Not just right now, but any time. To put on the salvation that God offers to you. And then there's a continual offering of salvation and grace to all those who are humble and desiring to submit to God. That, That grace is made available. He wants to forgive those who will draw near to Him. And He's there for us. And there's a beautiful picture of a future hope waiting for us. When this life is over, when we will be fully saved in the fullest sense from all the evils and all the sufferings and things that we're going through in this life. If you haven't taken part in the salvation that God offers and there's anything we can do to help you tonight, uh, will you please come forward as we stand and as we sing.